Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Welcome to the Overcoming Emotional Overeating podcast. In this episode, I am on a live pre-recorded call with clients talking about food addiction. I'm repurposing this call so that everyone can get value from it as we learn and grow together. Take a listen. I have a question. Yeah. Um, where do hormones come into play? Because... I'm a female, and once a month, I crave the same types of food. I want something salty. I want something sweet. Where does that come into play, and what can we do about it? Great question. So let me, let me speak to that. There is, from a hormonal standpoint, there are dips. Just so you guys all know, it's any females on the line. A few days prior to menstruation, we have dips in serotonin. It's normal and it's natural. And in that, we may crave some carbohydrate-based foods. However, if you're not getting enough good carbohydrates in physically and you're not modulating that, with some things to help hormonally, meaning, you know, some bumps in exercise or things of that nature that can help with testosterone, you'll crave more. That drop in serotonin level is normal, and it happens to everybody. But it's what you do with it, and in knowing that that's coming and it's happening is how you can handle it. That's not a sugar addiction to me. That's a brain chemistry shift that happens due to menstruation. And it's understanding the difference. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. So in that instance, I'd say, excellent, you're a normal female. <laughs> I'd say, great, you're a normal female, right? And you have, you know, that serotonin dip that we all do. And just in knowing that, you begin to empower yourself to know, okay, well, that's my serotonin level dipping. And making sure that you're getting in enough fruit, because I, I do, I, I, in working with females for so long, I get what happens during that cyclical time of the month. And so we drop out some carbohydrates, and we might get stressed out, we might get a little anxious, and we're not sleeping right. And then you've got a trifecta of things going on. So um, that's how hormones play into that piece. And it's knowing that, understanding that, recognizing that, and then trying to fit into what works for you, the types of, you know, adding in more fruit that might help with that, um, that serotonin piece, adding some things that help uh, to make sure you're nutritionally balanced as well. Okay. Personally, I can imagine just getting my endorphin levels up and doing more exercise helps me 
especially because I deal with chronic depression. So when my serotonin levels are low, they are low. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. okay. And I'll definitely take right. the, the advice about the fruit into consideration because I tend to cut it out. <laughs> right. I don't know why, but it, it feels naughty. <laughs> yeah, right. feel like it's, you know, supposed to be good for you. Right, and and it is, and it helps with so many things. And one of the things that I can give you a little shortcut, too, one of the things that helps, like with that dopamine piece that I talked about, that can actually be done with food itself, um, that doesn't have to be high, high sugar or anything, you know, if you really feel like you've got a kind of a physical sugar addiction, that you can actually do things like baking apples or baked peach compost. Um, things like that, that you can get your fruit in that way and you can quell a little bit of that, maybe that need for that comfort when that serotonin level drops and, and making sure that you're getting in enough. It, it's so funny. Females are really good with vegetables kind of across the board. It doesn't mean that every female is, but um, I think as females, we tend to do better with that. Uh, but the fruits are what I see kind of pop down pretty quick. And those sugar cravings are going to pop up, particularly around that time in the month, if you're not getting enough fruit in because your serotonin levels drop. And even if you have to eat more fruit to kind of get that serotonin to where it needs to be stable and using exercise to help with the endorphin piece to help with the serotonin level, especially first thing in the morning, we know that that helps to modulate uh, hormones better, just for anyone who's interested. But, um, you know, going out for yeah, um, so it's just for everyone on the line, it, it's, it's interesting, but um, females, test- and males too, but testosterone levels are highest first thing in the morning. And so when a couple of days before our lining sheds, we drop our estrogen levels so that we can shed the lining and get our period. So when the estrogen level drops and that testosterone level at its highest, the first thing in the morning is where we're most off kilter. So if you can modulate that by doing a bit of burst training or getting out for a quick run, that'll drop that testosterone a little bit, and it will help you feel more more stable throughout the day on for uh, like hormonally speaking. So that's something that may be helpful during that time too, because it's that hormonal piece that can really and then that shifts up the brain chemistry piece. Okay, so I over answered your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) Great question. I mean, women's health and and hormones and, and, you know, sugar and brain chemistry, I I just love talking about it. So I'm sorry I over-answered that, but I I just wanted to. So (laughs) I guess I can. But thank you for your question. It's an excellent question and so so helpful, I'm sure, for, for so many people on the line. So thank you. Other questions? I promise I'll try not to over-answer. <laughs> I have a question. Um, what about, like, popcorn? If you get, like, a, just a plain, basic white popcorn, is that considered a uh, high-carb that converts a lot with sugar, or how does that work if you like popcorn? Great question. So popcorn, it, you know, obviously comes from the, we all know, right, it comes from the kernel of, of corn, which is a starchy vegetable. It's a lower glycemic carbohydrate than, let's just say, plain pasta. 
I don't know the number offhand of the glycemic index of popcorn, but it's in the mid-range. And so for some people, those mid-range glycemic index carbohydrates can, can make them want more, and for some people not. Now, what I find more so with the popcorn is the butter and the salt that goes on top, and the texture of the popcorn is that that's kind of what drives them. So identifying for you which of those pieces it, it, it is. I mean, popcorn obviously is not on our plan in particular because it, it is a moderate, a moderate level carbohydrate with respect to glycemic index. It, it will turn into a glucose as it's broken down. But again, being moderate, it's not as difficult for some people as like a cereal or a pasta where it's higher glycemic index and people really have a difficult time kind of slowing down that piece if they really have an issue with it. Um, but understanding for yourself, is it the craving for the popcorn or is it the salty, buttery texture piece for you that, that makes you want to go for it? But it is considered a carbohydrate as, as to how it's broken down in the body physiologically. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Other questions? Yeah, I have a question. Um, I was wondering about, I know on the plan we can have stevia, but I was wondering if there was any research on that sort of encouraging uh, the sweet tooth. And I definitely, I used to drink diet sodas, and I, I definitely felt like that really, I don't drink at them anymore. I know they're really horrible for you, but I really felt like my diet soda also increased my addiction to sugar and sweet mm -hmm. things. It did. And so that was excellent identification by you. And that's what we found research. I mean, time and, there has never been a research study that's been done that's proved the opposite, which is interesting. We know that people that drink diet soda crave more sugar. We know it. Whether they huh. act on it or not is a different story. But when you take in a non-nutritive sweetener, it actually drops your blood sugar. Because the, the tongue tastes the sweet nature, and then there is a biochemical reaction to what those pink, yellow, or blue packets do. And then the body gets no glucose or sucrose or fructose or any kind of oats. So it gets ready to have these oses come in, but no oses come in. And so your blood sugar drops. And when your blood sugar drops, you crave food sugar in particular because you're craving an oat, right? So that's true, yeah. And so getting that diet soda out of your system is, is the number one thing I always recommend. The interesting piece about that is we haven't seen the same thing happen with stevia or xylitol. And what we're trying to figure out now, because stevia and xylitol are, are kind of newer on the market compared to the non-nutritive sweeteners that have been around since the 50s. What we're trying to figure out is, is it because we don't have uh, a lot of sodas with stevia in it? So you don't see a lot of people consuming, you know, drinks on an empty stomach with stevia. We do feel like there's kind of that empty stomach component that could be a piece. We yeah. also feel like, remember I told you, there's a biochemical piece to those non-nutritive sweeteners. Stevia and xylitol are both herbs, and they both kind of come from nature, so to speak. So we do feel like there's a different interlay in how they react 
biochemically in the body, different than the non-nutritive sweeteners. Now, I wish I could kind of give you more on that, but because it's not extensively researched, I, and I also know, I guess, from what I've seen, I don't see people overusing stevia or xylitol like I've seen people overuse uh, a non-nutritive sweetener because it's not in a lot of the name brand sodas, which have become quite, you know, quite popular. So um, that's why, and, and it's part of why we recommend CBN xylitol because it is natural. There isn't a huge biochemical or physiological reaction to those substances like there has been found to be in the non-nutritive sweeteners. I also know that it's not in a whole lot of products. And when people eat things with stevia and xylitol, we're not seeing the same shift that I spoke about when it comes to diet soda. However, I'm going to say this because the research on stevia and xylitol is newer. If you feel like you're, you know, drinking whatever, uh, having that in a product or putting that in a drink, and you are craving more sugar, I would tell you to pull it out and see if it's still happening. Because I don't discount that we're all individuals and how CV affects me might be totally different than how it affects you. We're just not seeing the research on it. But we didn't see the research on the non-nutritive sweeteners until about 15 years ago, and they came out in the late 50s. So it, it took us quite a while to get a sense as to what that was doing. But from a perspective of knowing the biochemistry behind stevia and xylitol, knowing that they're made from whole food, they're made from, you know, a natural uh, product, I know it's not affecting the biochemistry at all like the other non-nutritive sweeteners are, which is why I can stand behind them a little bit more. So if someone needs to sweeten something, I'd rather have you use those things. Okay, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Yeah, and good point. And, and I'm glad you came off that diet soda. It, it's hard coming off diet soda for any of you guys that have ever had. I mean, it's interesting. Most people don't label themselves as a diet soda addict. <laughs> but that's one label I might help because I've helped people come off of it and get that label out of their out of their brain. I don't want the identity base there. But I will tell you, there there is really truly noted in the research uh totally that, that diet sodas are, are addictive and they are definitely difficult to get off of. So yeah. good job doing that for yourself. Excellent. I have one more question, if I may. Um, of course, we're referring to, like, the diet soda. Is crystal light kind of in the same vein as that? It is because it's a non-nutritive sweetener. And so it will do the same thing biochemically that the non-nutritive sweetener is doing in the diet soda. It's not as environmentally addictive. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to explain this. Please help, help me know if you're with me. There's a component to diet soda that's addictive because of the bubble, the pop, and the fizz, and the can. That doesn't exist with a crystal light. However, from the biochemical perspective, it's going to interact in the body the same as the non-nutritive sweetener that's in the diet soda. There's just more environmental, psychological factors surrounding diet soda. But the issue with how it affects the body in dropping the blood sugar and creating sugar cravings 
is very similar. So I'd rather see somebody, you know, make a big picture of, you know, put some ice water with lots and lots of lemon in it uh, and some lime wedges and things like that to give that, that water some flavoring and some ice so you make it nice and cold and refreshing. And then if you need to add a couple drops of stevia to have a little bit of sweetness, I'd rather see somebody do that than to go for a non-nutritive sweetener. There's lots of ways around those things. Okay. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. And in your manual, there's actually a, a page on, you know, how uh, different flavored waters that you can make. So that's helpful for people if they're looking for some other kind of beverages that taste good. Other questions? Um, let's suppose that someone does have a legitimate addiction to sugar, like sucrose. Forget agave, forget high fructose corn syrup. Um, what if you do have a true sugar addiction? Could that be genetic? So that's a great question. So if you really boil it down and you answer those four things that I talked about, right, like if you get the belief construct out and you figure out it's a brain chemistry piece and, you you know, you know you're eating enough and you know it's not it's like you've gone through the four checks, right, that I talked about, and then it still exists. So the research is interesting in that we still have not definitively figured out whether or not it can be a genetic piece. And for those of you out there who, who don't know what she's referring to, and, and I think this is what you're referring to, so correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there is, uh, some people are saying there's actually a gene or a genetic thing kind of that can create quote-unquote sugar addiction and that it can be a genetic component passed from parent to child. Now, the research hasn't proven that yet, um, and it goes back and forth. Uh, like, I'll see one study that is true and then another study that's negating it. Um, I, I think what we have to decide and what we know, if you look at epigenetics, are you familiar with epigenetics? No. Okay. So epigenetics has come about in the last, I don't know, I think it's been around for 20 years, but it, epigenetics is about the study of genetics but how your environment actually influences the expression of your genetics. And that's really where the research is leading. So, for example, you might have an addictive gene, not you in particular, sorry, but, you know, somebody, I should say, might have an addictive gene on their chromosome because their parents were alcoholics. If they live in a real stressful situation, if they're, you know, have a hard time making ends meet, if they're over their head financially, if they can't make everything work in their life and they have difficulty with their husband or whatever that might be, in that environment, that gene might express itself. They might wind up wanting to drink. They might wind up wanting to eat because of the environment that they're in. First, you could take another person with the same genetic predisposition, maybe has their parents that are, you know, were alcoholic, has the predisposition on a genetic code link that, you know, they could be addicted to sugar or alcohol because they're similar components, just everyone understands. But yet their environment doesn't allow them to express that. 
whether it be they don't have a lot of stress or they have a lot of money or whatever that is, or they take care of themselves. They eat right. They exercise, right? That, that, that person then wouldn't express that. So epigenetics is a really interesting thing because I believe it's probably the answer to why certain people will fall into their genetic lineage and other people have the same genetic lineage and don't even go near it. So that's something I know is on the forefront of the research right now. And I see, I know that that's where researchers are going towards now. It's like, okay, you might have this on your gene code, but let's figure out what in your environment is making that kind of express itself. So for those of you that have been on the call, I know, and I mentioned this before, but I've mentioned kind of my thing with coffee and how coffee doesn't work for my body. If I drink too much coffee, my joints get really, really inflamed. I have a huge genetic predisposition for rheumatoid arthritis. Coffee, for some reason, exacerbates that. If I take that out of my environment, I don't get joint pain. That's a prime example of epigenetics. And the list can go on and on. But... You can see how you can have that genetic predisposition, but if your environment, whether that be taking care of yourself, eating certain things, not eating certain things, running, not running, doing yoga, not doing yoga, decreasing your stress, you know, going to therapy, to therapy, whatever that is, you know, that if you don't allow that gene to express itself, it won't. And so that's where they're going with actually all facets of addiction, which is really, really interesting and I think really encouraging. Because I don't have a great genetic code on my DNA. <laughs> and so I don't want to be locked in a box to think that that's the only way I can be. And I don't ever want my clients or my patients or you guys out there to think they're locked in a box. And that's what I think is so great about epigenetics is it's really teaching us that we're not. And it's, and it's how we know certain people are not falling into their lineage and why other people might be. Does that, does that help with that question? Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. Okay. So it's like external yeah. factors affecting your internal disposition or your genetic disposition, I should say. Right. And Thank how that's expressed. Yeah. And how, the epigenetics is probably one of the coolest things. Um, and I would encourage everyone, even if you don't love that, but even just to watch a quick YouTube video on it, video on it, it's amazing. And I think it's so encouraging because it really allows us to understand why somebody can have, you know, four parents who are alcoholics and them not be an alcoholic versus a person who has one parent who drank sometimes and they're raging alcoholics, right? It's allowing us to understand how that's happening so and of course there's other factors involved but yeah look up epigenetics it's, it's really it's really amazing and it's very cool and i think I, I it's the way of the future it's the way that we're going to treat disease in the next 10 years i bet my life on it so great question take good care have a beautiful night everyone enjoy thanks for listening if you like this podcast share it with a friend rate review and subscribe you never know who you'll help become the next overcomer